Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back, everybody. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. Riley, this week we want to have a conversation about the Old Testament, as we call it in the Christian tradition, the Jewish Bible which, by the way, right away is kind of actually a little bit different in terms of the order of the books, but I'm getting ahead of myself. You know, we this is something that that is on the mind of a lot of our listeners at this time, uh, because we're going into studying the Old Testament uh, for Come Follow Me for our curriculum. We have a sister podcast that I'm now co-hosting, the Come Follow Me podcast. What is it called? Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. Ben and I recorded a a three-hour episode that may, may or may not be broken up into two episodes as an introduction to the Bible. And we wanted to have our own conversation about what is the Bible and what is the Old Testament and what do we do with this? And what about this? You know, what about evolution and and archaeology and linguistics and all these things that we've learned that that problematize it? And what about violence? You know, there's the divine violence, divinely sanctioned violence, at least seemingly. So let's have a conversation about this, Riley. Yeah, one of the things I like about how we're structured under the Latter-day Peace Studies umbrella and having this sister podcast is that the way that you guys will approach thing and, and things and have in the past approached things in terms of, you know, how you approach scripture with Come Follow Me is that, you know, there's there's a very studious approach there. And and we like to take the the mystical kind of contemplative approach to things. And, and approach it from just a slightly different angle. So, you know, oftentimes there will be some overlap between what we're perhaps studying in Come Follow Me and what we talk about on this podcast. That won't always be the case. In fact, it's, I guess, rarely the case, but it does happen. But the, the reason why I like having the two podcasts is just because of the difference in approaches. And so today, what, what I was hoping for, and I think that you would agree with this, is, is talking about an approach to the Old Testament that informs our, our contemplation. Our, our contemplative approach to, to Jesus and, and the Old Testament and religion and, and spirituality, and how does that fit within that context versus, you know, uh, evaluating the, the historical context of, of a book of Scripture or something like that. I, I guess I'm less interested in that, although I am interested in it, but for the, for the sake of this podcast, I'm more interested in the contemplative approach to the, to the Hebrew Scriptures. Yeah, that would be apropos on this podcast. So what do you want to do with all this stuff that I brought up? So we, I brought it up. Um, it's not really where we want to end up with this conversation. We want to end up in a, in a contemplative approach. So how much do you want to go into that? What do you want to talk about? Well, I, I think it's fine to kind of set the stage for, for what the Bible is. Okay. I, I, you know, it's really important, I think, for Latter-day Saints— we, we look at the canon of Scripture, and, and we have this approach to Scripture that it's an open canon. Like, we could actually add to Scripture today as, as a collective if we gathered together in a conference and, and the church came forth and said, we've, we've received this revelation. Do, do the membership accept this revelation as, as scriptural canon? We all raise our hand to the square, and, and boom, it becomes part of the canon at that point. Many religions don't have that approach to Scripture anymore. They say the canon is closed and nothing else can be added, and, and we have what we have, and that's it. So like the whole, you know, we have a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible type thing, right? We don't have that that belief. So um, it's, it is important for us to, to mesh that belief with what Scripture is, the Scripture that we have is. We know that there have been compilations of various... Uh, ancient religious books within the um, the Abrahamic tradition, you might say, that we have either accepted or rejected from our canon of scriptures for various reasons. And so I think it is important for us to talk about the Bible and what is it? How did it come to be what it is? Why did we keep certain elements and reject certain elements? That certainly plays into this discussion of, of contemplation because 
many times that which was rejected was just too mystical for the compilers. So they left it out and, and it ended up in the, you know, in the dustbin of history in some cases, um, you know, they, they had book burnings and such of these manuscripts and much of this stuff has been lost to, to history were it not for rediscovery of, of certain texts. So back to my main point, I think we talk about what the Bible is, how it came to be, and, and then we can start talking about how to use it. Yeah, I think, you know, in, in what you've said, it brings me to the idea of, of when, when I think about canonization, if we can go all the way back and start with the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, you have this, this group of texts that are compiled, that are written over a thousand years, you know, over a thousand year period where the oldest of them is probably the book of Job. And then you even have also this idea that if you go to the beginning of the Bible, as Rob Bell talks about it in What is the Bible, you start with Exodus. And listeners may think, wait a minute, the beginning is Genesis, isn't it? Well, no, the beginning is Exodus. Exodus is here we are in this scenario. And how did we get here? And then comes Genesis, right? And so then there's there's etiological narrative that tells us, and, and many of the narratives in the Old Testament are etiological. And I'm saying etiological, so it doesn't sound like I'm saying ideological. If I say, well, I don't know how else to say it, etiological. <laughs> so, so we think of it as history, and yet that's not what is, that's not what was intended. And so these texts are written over a thousand years. It looks like after the Babylonian exile, they're compiled into what what we now think of as, and they thought of, and and very much intentionally made into one book where you've smushed together all these texts, to put it that way, and you have these these narratives that are actually two different and contradictory narratives about Israel and two different theologies, you know, where you have these northern people and these southern people with their different ideas, and this stuff is all smushed together. And, and we want to read it literally as if it were history or something like that, when those people didn't have any way of even even if they had the tools to do that, which they didn't because they didn't have archaeology, they didn't have the linguistic knowledge that that takes, they had no interest in doing that either, Riley. Why are they writing what they're writing? It's, it's to tell you how things became the way they are. And so then that's all smushed together. And then later on, we talk about canon. We have our own canon. And how do we, we have that to deal with too. Like what, what's left in or what's kept and what's left out and why. And it's sort of arbitrary. And you get Joseph Smith asking, should I translate this apocryphal stuff, and you get from the Lord this answer that, well, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but some of it maybe not, and, and this is in my own words, of course, and it has to be read by the Spirit. Well, that's true of all of the of the canon too, right? Considering the arbitrary nature in which these things were decided, uh, the arbitrary way in which they were decided. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned they didn't have an interest in necessarily telling history or retelling history or preserving history, when at the same time we know very well that when it came to the, you know, like the scribal tradition of the Hebrew scriptures, I mean, it was letter by letter. No deviation was allowed. Those who wrote the Bible, it was like every letter had to be an exact copy. There was there was no interpolations allowed in that tradition. But I, that's less about preserving a perfect history than it is about preserving an origin story or a narrative, right? And and how they told their history was more about story than it was about archaeology or you know getting all the facts perfectly straight. It was and I love how Mircea Eliade brings this up because we bring this up all the time uh, his his contention that stories are remembered when they conf- when they conform to an ancient archetype that all of us recognize. And we, we like retelling stories that fit within the model. And so many of these stories, you'll actually find there, there are retellings in other models. The, the Gilgamesh epic, for instance, you'll have many of the same stories you'll find in the Old Testament, particularly the flood story and some of the creation stories. Some of that stuff is mirrored within the Bible. And, you know, roughly they come from the same area and roughly they come from about the same time. And so you would expect that. And and so the way these stories are told is meant to preserve the the origin story history, not so much the historical history. And, and so that's that's the part that they were looking to preserve is like this is this is where, where we come from spiritually speaking or communally speaking. Yeah. So when you talk about this letter for letter thing, I, I think you're referring to the Masoretes. The interesting thing about those guys is they're the ones that gave us the first. 
Hebrew text that comes down to us. The earliest Hebrew text that comes down to us of the Old Testament comes from the Masoretes. We call it the Masoretic text. Yeah, they, they pulled together from the best manuscripts that they had available to them and from the best oral traditions that were available to them, a, the earliest Hebrew text that we have. And yet, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation from an older Hebrew, is older than the Masoretic text. So the oldest text that we have of the Old Testament is a Greek translation from a lost Hebrew. And then we bring that forward into when it becomes canon and how, you know, for us as Christians, how we decide, you know, what's included and what's not included. And then when I say as Christians, you have Protestants and you have Catholics and you have Orthodox. And it turns out that as Protestants, well, not that we're Protestants, but the Protestant tradition left out at around the time of Joseph Smith's boyhood, the Apocrypha were removed. There's King James Apocrypha. The King James scholars translated that and that was removed. And so what are apocryphal writings? We should go into that a little bit. What's that mean? Well, it basically means that which was kicked out. Honestly, that's the difference, right? Um, And we've had this, and did we have it on this podcast? I can't remember. There's this discussion about what even is scripture. Right. We should talk about that too. Yeah. Essentially, it's what the, those in in charge decide is scripture and, and we all adopt it as scripture. Now, the approach that the individual can take is, well, does it speak to me spiritually on that level? Um, do I invest it with that kind of cachet that that sets it apart from other writing to make it sacred for me, right? It, it's really that which is set apart either by me individually and I consider something scripture or by the powers that be who decide what goes into the canon. Yeah, there is a little bit of that. To take a little bit more academic approach, that I think you're talking about the sacred texts that are accepted as scripture. And so that's a distinction right there that that's, you know, at some point, I mean, earlier, around the time of Joseph Smith, say, scripture just meant the Holy Bible, right? And so we haven't come, we're not in this fullness of times, we're coming into the fullness of times now in the fullness of times with the internet. And with all these translations, we have all these, we have access to all these sacred texts. And we, we recently did an episode on this, talking about all these sacred texts. And we have to distinguish now that scripture is something like a relationship between people who value that text in that special way that you mentioned and the text and among each other, right? So we have as a community of people who have a relationship with that text, we also have that relationship. So between me and the sacred text and between me and my community of other people who have that same relationship with the text. Yeah, and I would say that even within our community, there's diversity of opinion of opinion in what constitutes scripture. I don't know how many times in a Sunday school class or whatever, someone has, has said something along the lines of, hey, I've got my patriarchal blessing, which is a scripture to me. It's like a personal scripture. Or they say, every time we listen to General Conference, we're listening to the creation of scripture or something like that. Or when we get our ensign at the end of the, the conference addresses, that you, know, that you just add that right to the canon of scripture. I mean, for some people, that's how it is. And then you've got the other camp of people that say, well, scripture is only that which has been officially canonized or only that which speaks to me individually. So they may open up that episode of uh, the ensign, that not episode, <laughs> that edition of the ensign and say, well, only these two or three talks really speak to me. So those are those are scripture to me. Then you've got a whole other camp of people that are like, man, have you ever read Shakespeare or, you know, <laughs> or Chaucer or something like that? And they're like, oh, man, that's scripture to me. So really, scripture is what you make of it. It's what it's taking a text and the moment that it speaks to you and you invest it with that sacredness that you believe it has, then it's scripture. Yeah, you know, to tie the two ideas together between the the historicity of the Bible question and what you're talking about when it comes to the value that we can find in literature. And by the way, some of the, the poets that you didn't mention, like Dante and, Ch- and not Chaucer, but Milton, have influenced how we read scripture. Our ideas of, of, of Satan or of the devil uh, or why we would even conflate the two terms with also the serpent, by the way, uh, which are not necessarily one and the same thing for uh, ancient Israelites and for Jews even today, but for us are, it comes from Dante in the Middle Ages, right? It comes from uh, ideas about the Garden of Eden and about even some of what happened, the the the, the side of the, of the story of, of Lucifer or of the devil or of Satan, which again, who again, isn't even really in the story for Jews. You know, I was listening to a book by Peter Enns and he mentions a conversation that he had with um, a, a classmate at Harvard when he was studying the Bible, and his classmate was Jewish, and Peter Enns brought up the fall, 
And his classmate, this Jewish classmate, had no idea what he was talking about. The fall, what fall? And he told him, you know, the fall. And he says, he explains the thing. He says, that's, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. That makes no sense. He didn't have the same concept. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had a, I had a similar experience, actually, probably several occasions where this is one example. When I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I was 21 years old, and this was 1998. And prior to that, I, I had been Catholic. And so when someone said to me sacrament, the word sacrament in the Catholic sense, I was thinking, oh, this is one of the seven things you should do before you die, you know, and it wasn't like so particular. And then I joined the church and, and they're like, have you partaken of the sacrament? And, I'm, and I thought to myself, well, yeah, I mean, I was I've partaken of a couple of sacraments. And they're like, what? <laughs> a couple sacraments? <laughs> like, yeah, well, I was baptized and I was confirmed, you know, I had my confirmation and <laughs> Holy so, Communion, right? Uh, yeah, Communion, my first Communion. And so these are sacraments, you know, and so it's just, yeah, so much of it is just a, a matter of understanding and what the what the the baseline is for understanding. In, in this case, Dante has become a baseline for understanding Satan. Yeah. Another uh, topic that came up in that same conversation with between Peter Enns and his classmate was um, the, well, Satan in the garden. And, and he said, Satan, where, where's Satan in the garden? Well, you know, the serpent. Well, that's a serpent. That's not Satan. <laughs> so it's again, this. so it shows you that scripture is not the text. It's the interpretation that we have of the text and how we share it with each other and what it means to us. Um, as you've said, Riley, individually, I really like that, by the way. We can have our own individual relationship with a text such that it's scripture to us. And I know I have, we've had Travis Patton on the podcast. I, I can't speak for him, but I know he loves Dante. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that that means that he has a medieval idea of, of uh, Satan. It's just that he loves the text and he finds so much value in it in terms of, and, and so do I, and so, and so do you, Riley, right? About how we, it's, it's purgatory, really. It's not inferno. It's, well, the inferno tells us about ourselves too, and how we actually come close to God in that ascent. As we as we talked about with Travis on that on those podcasts we did with him, yeah. So you know, I think that's a, a a good segue. Now that we've established kind of what scripture can mean, and again, we don't have some determinal determinalist idea of what it has to mean. But you know, now that we've established what it can mean, how do we how do we go about approaching it, and what are the uses for it? Yeah. So if we're not looking at a history text. And, and we're stead, and it's not about uh, logos, right? It's about mythos. It's about mythology, not about logical, rational, propositional arguments. Keep in mind that a lot of the, the Bible, the Old Testament, is written in verse, and verse is not meant to speak to you at a propositional level to your intellect, right? The point of poetry is to speak to your heart, speak directly to your right. heart, yeah, directly to your heart. And so, if we're reading translations that don't that aren't even in poetic form then we're missing the message, the main message. Pre-show, you, you and I talked about our preferred translations of the Bible and, and why, and, and I have other sacred texts that I have preferences in translation, and I think that's something worth talking about too. What were you saying about that? Well, I mean, I, I have a preference for the New Living Translation. It's one of my favorites just because of the vernacular. It, it speaks in kind of modern vernacular, but with a poetic tone to it. And so I like that. You're a big fan of NRSV, as am I, but for different uses, right? Right. So which is the best translation is one of the questions that people always have. And I get that question a lot based on my knowledge of languages and my own translation experience. And it depends. It really depends on what we're here to talk about contemplation. I personally love the King James Bible when it comes for, to a devotional reading. You know, the King James translation is an excellent translation. And it's pretty theologically neutral of really bad manuscripts compared to the ones that we can read, do our, our serious Bible study from today, I choose, like you, the, the NRSV. But when it comes to devotional reading, when it comes to memorizing something, that King James Version is part of our vernacular. It's part of our everyday speech. So many turns of phrases that come out of that are used all the time in American English. It's interesting, too, like the way that we've been taught, at least within our church, to have reverence when reading or speaking, reading about or speaking to um, the divine is in this sort of old English vernacular, right? And so it right. automatically evokes, it becomes evocative of reverence. 
and reverence to me also evokes kind of that that heartfelt connection. Um, when I'm thinking uh, through scriptures and and scriptures pop into my head, they always pop into my head in the King James version because to me that's so much more it's more heart-centered. It's more evocative of the divine and reverence. I'll tell you a personal story about what you brought up, Ryan. This is fun fact. So it turns out, so in English and, and in our in our church, but in English specifically, we like to pray in terms of thee and thou because it's more formal because we're talking to God. Except it's not. Well, it turns out that's, that's <laughs> not the formal form of address. It becomes for us this strange, more formal thing because it's not the way we talk, but it turns out that those were the familiar forms of address. So if you go over to you know attend a sacrament meeting in Spanish or something in our church, then you get the, um, the familiar form of address is used for God. And again, it turns out that's what's being done in King James English too, but we don't know it. We don't realize that we're using the familiar form and we think of it as this this distant formal thing that we're so we've got it so completely backwards. It's kind of fun. Yeah, and I, I've read a lot of German translations of of scripture and it's the same thing. Um you get a totally different sense when you're speaking in the familiar voice versus in the kind of the reverential, separate, distanced voice of of formality. So yeah, that that is interesting. That's cool. But it would seem weird. It's like we how do we even how do we get out of that? It's it's the Latter Day Saint tradition in English, at least in English, right? We it would you know we've I, I've heard my Baptist neighbors pray, and it's so familiar and informal and casual, and that would just seem weird in our context, right? Yeah, I mean I've I've kind of transitioned over to praying in that way. Um, every once in a while, it'll pop back into my head, and I don't really have a whole lot of control over it just because it's what I've used for so long at this point, last 24 years or whatever, is the thee, thou, and all that. But I've I've conditioned myself for the most part to get away from that and just speak to God as if I'm speaking to someone that's in front of me, you know, and uh, having a conversation. Um, and hopefully that doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't take... God down a level in in reverence for me. I just imagine that he doesn't really care that much <laughs> about how we approach him. He just wants us to talk to him. Or that he cares so much for you that, that he wants to talk to you. Yeah. And he wants you to talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of that's sort of made up. But um, what's that, Riley? What's, what's made up? Just the whole that you must, you must pray in this sort of oh, yeah. formal but not really formal voice, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, if it's official, they didn't tell people who are Spanish speakers. <laughs> we right. have a formal form of address in Spanish. It's not used. Oh, but, prayer. you know, there have been conference talks on this, you know? Essentially, I think it was Boyd K. Packer that said, you know, we should always use the these and thous and, you know, arts and thou thou art and <laughs> like. Oh, boy. It's, it's, it's going to be fun to go look those up in Spanish and see what they did with that. Nobody <laughs> listened in Spanish. I can tell you that. They probably just deleted that talk from the ensign in Spanish. So. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, that's yeah. right. The Leon is actually uh, selections, not yeah. not everything yeah, that appears exactly. in the ensign. Yeah. So that's in, an interesting thing. you know. So the other thing about reading scripture, too, no matter whether we're reading it religiously or critically, and we're here to talk about mostly about how to you know read it religiously, but either way, we have our own modern Western interpretation and based on our own culture and language to a text that is an ancient Near Eastern text. And that, on the one hand, can get in the way. On the other hand, in a religious reading and in a, in a reading where we're going to connect with God through the reading, not in the reading, but through the reading, it just doesn't matter. But we could still go into it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason it doesn't matter is because we're not trying to prove a case. I, I, I wouldn't base a you know, a master's thesis on a, on a religious reading of a text, because then it's up for debate. I, but I, I would spend a significant amount of time reading a text religiously for the value it provides me individually. So I think when, when you take, you know, confirmation bias, it is a risk when you're taking a scholastic, you know, approach to something. But if, if what you're, if what you're doing is reading something religiously for the value that it provides you, it's less of a risk to to have confirmation bias when you're reading scripture. I mean, certainly I think we should take context into account at all times, sure. But that that also limits us from our ability to derive the most out of a text. Yeah, that brings to my mind a couple of things. The first thing is that if 
if we're not if we're if we're doing as you say and we're not actually claiming that this is the interpretation then we should be very careful to remember that when we when we talk to other people such that we don't try to impose our interpretations so whatever you get for you personally awesome you got it for you personally keep it to yourself right there's that i mean you can share it but not in a way that says you have to accept this right it's not this authoritative interpretation and on the other hand, we can go into better understanding the context and taking this critical approach for the sake of new insights that are more contemplative and a more religious approach. So we can blend these two approaches in, in interesting ways. Because if it turns out, you know, look, for example, I, we've mentioned a few times on the podcast that when, when in the New Testament we're told that your body is a temple, that that you in the original Greek is plural. And so the temple then is the body of Christ, which are the Christians, right? The, the community of Christ, all of us as Christians in one. And yet there's nothing, and, and that's something that you get from understanding a little bit more of the language. And yet there's nothing wrong with thinking of your body, Riley, is a temple. And therefore right. you should take, you know, you should take notice of what you put into it. And at the same time, we have to remember that there's a scripture that says that nothing you put into it is the problem. It's what comes out of it that's a problem. And, and that's about, I think we can take that more about language. So, you know, there's, what about contradictions, Riley? There are contradictions in the scriptures. If we go back to Proverbs, you know, we're told that we shouldn't, that we, we really need to, to deal with a fool and let him know that he's a fool so that he doesn't be a fool, right? That this is a, a very loose paraphrase. But in the same book of Proverbs, we're told, don't talk to fools. It's just, don't talk to them. So it's, which is it? Do I talk to him and let him know, no, you've got this wrong? Or do I just like not engage and walk away? Because this matters. Like, this matters on Facebook, right? Today. And so the, the approach, Riley, I think that we can take is a wisdom approach. If we're not turning to the Bible for answers or for information, then we can be turning to it for wisdom. And then wisdom means it depends. It depends. It depends. It depends. It depends on the context. And I think we ought not um, suppose that our impositions of meaning on a past scripture don't have some effect on how we interpret those scriptures and how we might use them to interpret other scriptures. So if that's confusing, the case in point is one you brought up, uh, maybe it was pre-show with, with Paul and the way that he read Isaiah. And, and the same could be said actually for how Matthew chronicled the life of Jesus and and adopted so many Old Testament passages to apply to to Jesus that might not have been intended to originally. Um, it, it really doesn't necessarily matter so much that that happened. I mean, it matters, but it we're not limited by only one way of reading the scriptures. And so, as you said earlier, sometimes the academic approach to scriptures is appropriate. Sometimes the religious approach, and sometimes the overlap or the influence they have upon each other can illuminate all other scriptures around us. And so as, as was the case with Paul and as was the case with, with Matthew, who was very fond of, of fulfillment of ancient scripture within Jesus, it became the lens through which he saw everything. And that opened up, that opens up for us how we read the Old Testament. And it doesn't mean, have to be the only way, but it is a way. Yeah, that harks back to our conversation on the podcast with Ben on hermeneutics, right? The the New Testament writer's hermeneutic in reading the Old Testament was Christological. Jesus is the Christ. If there's a reference to the Christ or the Messiah in the Old Testament, it's about Jesus. And that's not how it is for Jews, right? Yeah, what the Book of Mormon tended to do was to synthesize those and, and make them explicit, right? It, it, instead of saying, you know, a babe will be born to a virgin— and maybe intending it one way, and then having the New Testament uh, author say, well, that babe being born, born to a virgin was Jesus, the Book of Mormon just goes right ahead and says, the babe born to the virgin is Jesus. Right. And yet that's, that was, that's a book that is supposedly supposed to overlap the Old Testament period, right? So what the Book of Mormon has done is has synthesized or harmonized the two approaches to the Old Testament in one. Yeah, and that's one of the many anachronisms that we find in the Book of Mormon, right? Even this idea of people calling themselves Christians and whatnot. And and this, you know, there's there's an easy explanation for that, you know, that if you want to take an apologetic approach, it's not that hard because whatever the text is, 
Joseph Smith put it in his own words. And for Joseph Smith, he has, even if the text is ancient, Joseph Smith is living in the 19th century and he has his own context as a Christian. And he, and he breathes that into the text, into this, what he calls a translation that he's giving us of the Book of Mormon. Well, and on the flip side of that argument is an apologist can also say that any prophet living in ancient times, rather than us or a critic being able to use that as a strike against the document, an apologist could really easily say, well, weren't these written by prophets and seers and couldn't they foretell those arguments and, um, and be able to address them in ancient times? I mean, if they truly are prophets and seers, so... That's one idea of what, what it means to have prophecy and revelation, right? Yeah. Well, seership more than anything, right? Is be able to, to see the, the future interpretation of something and just oh, go ahead and impute it right in the work right now. Why wait? Right. And so, the, so, and by the way, with the Book of Mormon, it said, it said that it was written not only for us, but to us. The, the Old Testament was not written to us. It was definitely written for us. I think we can say it's written for us, but it's not written to us. The Book of Mormon, the, the claim is that it's written to us. The people who wrote it didn't even have it amongst themselves. They had, what is it called? The brass plates, right? Which we think are, are somehow perhaps equivalent to maybe what we think of as the Old Testament. So that, that makes it kind of interesting too. And of course, that's about the Book of Mormon. But the Old Testament, you know, this is something that's not written to us. So it's really not in our, it's not in our language. It's not in terms of our culture. It's even those who compiled the book that we call, which is really a library, right? The Old Testament, even it was old to them. It, you know, it had been written over a thousand year period. If you take Job as the oldest book, then it's a thousand years older than the, than the latest book that they put together into one library that we now call a book. You know, you're bringing up kind of an interesting point that's that's causing me to think about Joseph Smith a little bit. And I know that he started and didn't fully complete a Bible translation, you know, the, the, the Joseph Smith translation or the, um, yeah, the inspired edition of the Bible or whatever. Um, but it does make me wonder what a full Bible would look like that was, that was translated, so to speak, or, uh, written out as an inspired version of the ancient text by Joseph Smith. Like, would he have changed a verse that references, for instance, Emmanuel? you know, in, in Isaiah and just replaced Emmanuel with Jesus because he is God with us or something like that, you know? Um, and, and is that the approach that we can take to the Book of Mormon as well? Who knows? But, um, you know, that if there's something that Joseph Smith did that's kind of experimental and that we could maybe even take a, a cue from, it might be, how did he read Scripture and, uh, and extend that into how did he use Scripture? Like he had, he had a, a tendency to just to make it his own um, and add or or subtract verses as he saw fit, which no self-respecting Christian outside of the, the restorationist tradition would think to do. Man, you can't just add a verse to Scripture, right? Yeah, I, a Bible, a Bible, right? We we already have a Bible, and and we're you know Latter Day Saints are accused of being, um, you know of inventing scripture or adding to the scripture to what, again, you said uh, among Christians is considered to be a closed canon, right? This is it. And so this idea of being able to add to it and to improvise on a theme, right? That's a, that's a way of thinking about it, to use sort of musical terminology, is to improvise on a theme. This is done all the time. And if he did do what you asked or what you, yeah, what you asked what it would be like if he'd done this, right, with the, with the manual, if he did that, he would be doing the same thing that the New Testament writers did with the Old Testament. Right? He would be, he'd be doing the same thing, and, and, and so can you, right? So can I. We should be doing this. It's after, we, after we, you and I discussed the, the revelation in section 76, I remember uh, telling my kids, and I think I mentioned this, and I, I talked about this, that section with Ben, too, on the Come Follow Me podcast. I told my kids, you should be producing scripture, not just consuming it. You know, this has me thinking too, and I know that it's outside the Abrahamic tradition, whereas, you know, the, the Hebrew scriptures are Abrahamic, the New Testament is just a, a continuance of that, uh, both chronologically and theologically. But what if we were to take a Christological approach to the Bhagavad Gita or the Gilgamesh epic or, you know, whatever? Like, what? Yeah. how different would that be for us and what would that illuminate for us? 
Yeah, and it's not hard to do with the with the Bhagavad Gita, at least. You know, the Gilgamesh, as you pointed out earlier, fits in with the flood narrative in the in in the in Genesis, right? And in fact, it's probably one of the sources. It's it's definitely a, a what do you call it? A parallel text, right? To and there are others. You know, the creation myths from ancient Mesopotamia. It really looks like the authors of Genesis. They took myths from around them, myths that were familiar to them and would be, of course, familiar to their their readers, and they adapted them in their own way. They did the same thing with those myths that the uh, New Testament writers did with their writings, and that, by the way, the Muslims have done with the biblical stories. And Joseph Smith did it too. And Joseph Smith did it too, and so can he, you. He, he took it to the, to the Native Americans, and, and they had this conversation about well, who's who's the great spirit? Well, the great spirit is Heavenly Father. It, he's just adapting scripture to the myth narrative of another people. Exactly. So if you read the Quran, you'll find that you almost can't read it unless you know the Bible. I don't know how some Muslims read it because they're told that the Bible has been corrupted in the same way, in a similar way that we say that that um, plain and precious truths have been lost through misinterpretation or mistranslation, or I think they usually say mistranslation, although it seems like interpolations and misreadings or, well, okay, misinterpretations are valid too, and they can get baked into the translations. But if it's just about translation, we have the original source documents. Why don't we just look back at those? So I don't know why we say that. And it could be because of Joseph Smith's idea of what translation is, which really isn't about so much about language as it is about context. You know, when he makes his, you talked about his translation, he's really reading Adam Clark's commentary. And this is this has been demonstrated, out, papers coming out of BYU show this, where he just took from a, a commentary that was available in his day, Adam Clark's commentary, and he included interpretations from that uh, commentary into his, what he calls a translation. Now, is he inspired or is he not inspired because of this? Why would I say he's not inspired? What does he include? What does he not include? This is by inspiration, right? This is what we call inspiration is to to be able to, it's a way at least of, of knowing or determining or deciding what to include and what not to include because he didn't just copy the whole Adam Clark commentary, right? But if you read the Quran and you don't know the Bible, you almost can't make sense of it because it takes Bible stories as given, you should already know this story, and now I'm going to adapt the story for another purpose. Yeah, it'll reference Abraham, and it'll reference Moses, and, and you're thinking to yourself, well, who are these people, if you've never read the Bible? Yeah, I mean, they're known as the, as the fathers of both traditions, right? Uh, Abraham is, at least, and it, the, the first monotheist, as uh, Muslims would think of him as the first Muslim, you know, and, and more specifically. But, you know, things like the flood story or things like um, the garden uh, story or these kind of stories are taken and repurposed. And there's hardly any narrative to the, the Quran while I'm on the subject. You know, you have, if you want to know about Adam and Eve in the Quran, and it's actually worth looking into because, as I, as I think I said on, on another episode, you have a, in the garden myth in the, in the Quran, you have something that shows up in none of our sacred, in none of our standard works what we consider our canon, uh, what I'll call our canon, this, the standard works. We can agree that the standard works are the standard works. Let's not get into what's canon. Um, and yet it's taught in the temple and it's in the Quran. But you don't find everything about Adam and Eve in the Quran in one place. The only sustained narrative that you get is Joseph. And I will absolutely turn to that narrative when Ben and I talk about Joseph and, and you know the Come Follow Me podcast because it's, there's so much more detail and you know who's another example, Riley? There's a translator whom I love, Stephen Mitchell. He recently wrote a book. I guess he's got a new one out this year on the first Christmas. I can't wait to read that one. But from uh, last year, or maybe a couple of years ago now, he has this book on Joseph. It's called Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness. And he takes the story of Joseph because as he points out, this is something else about the Hebrew Bible that, that in translation we don't really see or understand, is that the language is so compact and he just expands it, and he just tells more of the story about how uh, all the details. You know, he he, it's historical fiction, right? It's a, it's a fiction, but it's a, when I say fiction, remember this is a poet. He, by the way, is the one who gave us a Gilgamesh that's that's not fragments, right? Because all we have of Gilgamesh are fragments, and he fills in the blanks. He invents as a poet does the story, and it comes alive. Hmm. Well, do you mind if we take the last? 
maybe 20 minutes or so to talk about how to use the Bible. You know, we're going into a year where we're going to be reading a lot of Old Testament. We're going to be discussing a lot of Old Testament. And one of the traps you can get you can get uh, ensnared by when you're doing that is just strictly memorizing stories and maybe talking at a very surface level about, you know, the the moral or ethical lessons that come out of this. But maybe we should discuss other ways to use the Old Testament, especially from a contemplative point of view, and how that how that ancient scripture can be maybe more useful than we anticipated or that we or that we've used it in the past. I mean, when I was uh, when I was growing up, I, I think I've told this story before, but my first experience with a Bible was at nine years old. I had the red letter Bible, and so I spent almost all the time in the red letters, you know, which is mostly the Gospels and the words of Jesus, right? And I spent very little time in the Old Testament because it seemed so arcane to me. Well, most people, once they kind of mature and grow out of that total misunderstanding of the Old Testament, they enter into that kind of first stage of, okay, I kind of get the context here, and they're talking about, you know, pride or forgiveness or, or you know, obedience or some lesson, right? So they get to that kind of base level of ethical teaching that the Old Testament communicates. I contend, well, and I think I think I can do this pretty confidently now that I've spent some time with it, that there are other methods and understandings of the Old Testament that communicate much deeper meaning. So maybe we could talk about some of those. Yeah, and before we before we go into that, if you don't mind, I'll just share from a book by John Walton I recently read. It's called The Lost World of the Torah. And John Walton points out and makes a pretty good argument that you can't actually, that the, that the Torah is not actually teaching morality. And this is, seems really controversial. If, if you just heard me say that and, you, and you're taken aback, I, I'm not surprised at all. But it turns out that it's not that hard for you to figure out that if you went into the Bible, into the Old Testament especially, and you wanted to find out what to do and what not to do, that you'd pretty quickly be picking and choosing which things you're going to ignore and which things you're going to go with. Because no matter how tempted you are to, um, to kill your son if he's not behaving, we just don't think that way. That's just not something we do, right? And 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 some of us really enjoy lobster too. I enjoy lobster. How about yeah. you? Yeah, no, it's yeah. it's very far from halal for me. Yeah, uh, we have to it's have not forbidden it? at all. <laughs> we, yeah, so we have to actually have our morality already with us in going to that text. We can't actually get it from the text. Did I say halal? It's haram, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you said, no, you said it's far said, from halal. Oh, it's far from haram. Yes, I yeah, get you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's kosher for you. Let's put it that way. It's kosher. <laughs> yeah. You're okay with lobster, right? So we have to have our morality already firmly in place and with us when we come to the text for it to work that way, which means it doesn't actually work that way. Right. That's not what it's doing. So if it's not about uh, law and if it's not about answers and history and information, then it's about wisdom. No, you bring up a really good point because honestly, if you were just to evaluate your own intrinsic morality, maybe what some might call the light of Christ, I think our compass is pretty okay already. And and anything that would elaborate that uh, upon that within the Old Testament could actually just detract from it. Like there, there's very little of grace and forgiveness and patience in the Old Testament. You know, it's it's always eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and and destroy your neighbor or, or your enemy and uh, eliminate the threats. And it's it's very childlike in its understanding of, of ethics and morality. So gr- great point. A very childlike in, in its understanding of God. Very good point, Riley. So let's, since you brought that up, let's go into that a little bit. You know, here we are podcasting for Latter-day Peace Studies. We talked about hermeneutics. We talked about our nonviolent hermeneutic. I think just to say, to, to put a, a finer point on it, just because somebody in ancient scripture thinks God told them to kill someone doesn't mean I have to think that. Their understanding of God, of, of, of Yahweh, of, of uh, the ancient Israelite understanding of God as, as a warrior God, just like every other tribe had their warrior God that goes out with them in battle and, and tells them to kill everybody, it, that doesn't mean that's who God is. That's not, I know who God is. That's not who God is. God is revealed to me in, in my own personal um, experience and also on the cross in Jesus and in, and in Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where, by the way, uh, Matthew is intentionally putting Jesus, um, 
giving moral instruction from from the top of a mountain, right? Something like that, which is really a hill. I've been there myself uh, on the side of a of a lake. We call a sea, right? So you have this mountain by the sea that's a a hill by a lake. Uh, where he's trying to draw parallels between Exodus, you know, with between Moses receiving the Ten Commandments and Jesus giving his teachings. But the point is, I know his teachings. I know they're about peace. I know they're about forgiveness. And I know his example. He taught by precept and example. And so I don't have to believe that just because someone in antiquity thought that way about God, that that's who God is. Yeah, and maybe that's a good place to start. We had this episode we did on hermeneutics. And how we use the Bible really depends a lot upon our how we read the Bible, the hermeneutic that we apply to it. And, and so, you know, if we take that approach that, first of all, the Bible is descriptive rather than prescriptive, the same approach that, by the way, we absolutely should take, in my opinion, with the Book of Mormon, if we take that approach, then, then how do we use it? How can we learn from it? Like, what is there for us of value? Well, the first thing I think we have to do is to actually choose a hermeneutic, meaning if we say, I'm not going to choose a hermeneutic, if we skip the step, whether intentionally or accidentally, then it turns out that we do have a lens through which we're going to read it, but we're not aware of what that lens is. And so what's reflected back to us... Or it's the default lens, right? Or it's the default lens, which, yeah, to to speak to that, Riley, it would be the Christological lens. And now you can go read the Old Testament and prove to yourself that Jesus is the Christ, but you already know that. You already believe that. So why not do something else, right? Well, and, and you can do more than one thing at once, right? You can kind of, you can continue to believe that and you can continue to find uh, evidence or confirmation for that belief in the Old Testament while at the same time consciously applying this, this hermeneutic from which you hope to learn something of great value. Yeah, and, so if the Old Testament was pointing to Christ, why wouldn't it be pointing to Christ's teachings? I can take the Beatitudinal hermeneutic and go look for that in the Old Testament. And that's not something I've seen really done in Sunday school at, at our church. So I can go do that myself and bring it to the class myself. Because what Sunday school out there doesn't want to hear from you if you've actually done your homework? <laughs> Let's have a discussion. Yeah, and as a, as a Sunday school teacher myself, when I talk about something like the Old Testament— it can get very dicey because you've got the full spectrum of lenses out there. The way that people see Scripture is so diverse. And, well, and I wouldn't say it's super diverse in Latter-day Saint uh, culture. I wish it was more diverse um, because we tend to have a very literalistic viewpoint of, script- of Scriptures, generally speaking. And, and so sometimes the best thing for me to do is just to open up methodically how to use the scriptures. That's the best thing I can contribute. And if someone chooses to accept that, great. If, and they can go out and read scriptures in a new way and receive new truth from it, fantastic. And if they choose not to and they just want to continue applying their literalist um, hermeneutic or lens to the scripture, there was really nothing I was going to say that was con- going to convince them otherwise anyway, but at least I can reach some people with that idea. Yeah, it's hard to take a literal approach, you know. The best thing to do if you want to take a literal approach is don't read the text. And that's what I think most people who, who already know what the Bible says uh, do to, to avoid running into problems is just avoid the text altogether. Most people don't read the Old Testament. So if you go into Genesis 1 and 2, that's as far as you have to go as the first two chapters to run into contradictions of two, two different narratives about the same event from different authors with different purposes and intents in writing. And take that literally. Now what? How, how do you do that? <laughs> you can't. No. So what I've chosen to do, and, and maybe this is kind of the, that point in the podcast where we hope we can contribute something to the listener who's, who's looking for a new way to use the Old Testament, or maybe scriptures in general. I've talked about it many times myself because it's, um, it's become my practice to, to use this idea of Lectio Divina and applying that to scriptural interpretation. And this is by no means a scholarly academic approach to to Scripture. It is contemplative. No, it's very much a religious approach. Absolutely, 100%. It's contemplative, yeah. It's contemplative religious approach to Scripture. It's how I personally, on an individual level, can derive what I feel like is the most value out of Scripture. Again, I, I can— I can still hold the prior ideas about Scripture. I, you know, maybe I believe they're literal. Fine, I can still hold that and apply Lectio Divina. I can take the Christological approach. How do you do that, Riley? Well, because— 
No, I'm I mean, looking... how do you how do you take this Lectio Divina approach? You recorded a whole episode uh, with Shiloh on this uh, before I joined you. I did. I still don't know. Have I ever done that? I'm not sure. I we thought did. you and Shiloh recorded an episode. Well, listen, if you haven't, we'll have to do that. I'll have to look back at the catalog. I think we still have yet to do it. But anyway, um, so the well, let's go into it a little bit. Yeah. So the method itself is so simple. In fact, I teach it to my young men's classes that I that I. I'm currently t- serving um, two callings right now, teaching gospel doctrine or Sunday school, I guess they call it now, and teaching my teacher's quorum. And um, and not so much teaching, but just kind of being, they've got a new calling. I don't, they call it a youth leader or something like that. I don't even know. Anyway, I go to their activities. I, I contribute to their lessons. That's about it. So uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I taught them this method. And we did a follow-on activity at a, at a kind of elongated... Um, young men's camp out that we did in the shelter behind the church. And we practice this method again. And again, it's called Lectio Divina. And essentially that means, um, it means divine reading. And it's not study. So again, separating it a level from the scholarly academic approach. It's not study. It is it's contemplation. It's, it's contemplation. You're reading and then you're contemplating what you're, re- what you're reading. So it's a five-step process. Step one is to read. And by read, we're not trying to pass off or check off a box and say, okay, I read my chapter for the day, or I read the book of such and such this week. Great, I checked that box off. No. It may be that you only read a single sentence before you stop. The point of this reading in Lectio Divina is simply to help you find a mantra, something on which to focus and contemplate and meditate. Once you've found that, then you step away from from the text for a moment, um, maybe for a while. So the exercise that I did with my young men over the last couple of weeks is we, we opened up to a random scripture. And I read this aloud to them. And you wouldn't always do this in a group setting. It's probably ideally done individually. But I did this in a group setting. And I opened up a scripture and I just started reading. I said, at any moment, I want you to subtract a phrase or a word or whatever sentence out of what I'm reading, and I want you to plan it in your brain and start repeating it. While I'm finishing my reading for the other young men, you do that. And so I, I read a, a long passage, and once all the boys had a, a small segment of that that had spoken to them or was confirmed to them by the Spirit, then we stopped. At that point, I, I explained to them the meaning of a mantra. That word, phrase, sentence, whatever, verse, became for them a mantra. And a mantra is a repeated phrase that helps you set the intention of a meditation. And it actually does a fairly good job, a serviceable, a serviceable job anyway, of sort of drowning out the distractions of the outer world that tend to beset you when you're in meditation. And so then I explained a basic meditation posture and what we're going to be doing during that meditation, breathing and such. Chris, you had a comment on that? Yeah. So I just, you know, I was going to give a, a an etymology of mantra, because I think it's helpful um, beyond just knowing where it comes from, because it tells you what it is, right? So mantra is is a mind. Man is mind. It's actually related to mens. It comes from Sanskrit. And tra means vehicle. So it's a mind vehicle. It's this it's this bus that you're going to get on, right, through your meditation. Um, when I meditate, I meditate on the mantra one, as in Tawheed in, in Islam, you know, the unity of all being. Love that. Yeah. And and for me, my mantra constantly changes, but I do have some that I come back to over and over and over. For instance, peace I leave with you is one that I reference all the time. Um, but anyway, what I wanted to do is introduce these guys to the topic of the mantra and how to use it. So we set our intention, we got into our posture, and it was a very receptive palms up posture um, you know, your, your spine straight, you're breathing deeply into your abdomen and, and really setting a, a cadence that would match the mantra that's repeated in your mind. And once that's done for even just a couple minutes, it's amazing. The, I had one of my young men who's 13 years old. He explained how everything went blank. I was like, wow, yes, that's the state you're trying to arrive at. Because I think that that blank slate, you know, there's a great quote from Yogananda that says, stillness is the altar of the spirit. And if you can find your way to that stillness, then you, there's space there for the spirit to reveal to you. 
And so it's in that, in that space that we're trying to get these boys. And it's, it's really amazing that a, a complete generation raised on, on constant gratification, constant dopamine hits from technology can still find their way to this space. That tells you how biologically interwoven meditation is and, and the contemplative mindset is with humans. We're born for this. It sounds like you're describing sort of a hybrid of, of Lectio Divina with, with, you know, with traditional maybe transcendental meditation or something like that. It sounds pretty cool. Yeah, the meditative aspect of Lectio Divina, I think, is pretty open. Like it can, it can really be done in a way that is— You could journal, it's right? it's very individual to the person. Sure, why not? You could yeah. just sit and think about what you read, right? This is the meditation portion of it. You know, St. John of the Cross, one of the earlier the earliest advocates of of Lectio Divina, perhaps not the earliest, but definitely one of. This is how he described the Lectio Divina process. He said, "Seek by reading." Okay? So that first step of seeking by reading. Well, what are you seeking? That's to be revealed to you. But when something jumps out at you, that's where you stop. Because to read any further, you would lose what it, whatever it was you were seeking. Yeah, and if you ever have this question pop up in your mind, which happens all the time, well, why this? Well, what's that got to do with anything? That's the thing. That's the <laughs> that's one. That's the yeah, thing. That's yeah, why you go with, with that. that. Yeah. yeah, that's so how he you know said, it's the thing. Seek by reading, and you will find by meditation. I love mm. the connection, seeking and finding. That sounds very biblical. It's very Joseph Smith. You know, knock and it shall be open. Seek. You know, seek by reading and you will find by meditating. So if you're not sure why that thing is sticking out to you, then you'll find it in your meditation. And then the follow-on scripture is kind of a couplet. It says, knock by praying. So why would we pray after meditating? Why this order? I mean, I'm not saying it can't be done in a different order, but this is the way it's done. Yeah, to me, it's interesting because it looks like this pattern, it looks a lot like the trivium in classical education, right? The first step is to take in information. The second step is to, and that's the grammar portion. The the logic portion is to actually think about it, right? To actually understand it. So there's information, there's understanding. And then the third step is to actually express oneself. And 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 so that's an expression, right? The prayer is an expression. It's a it's a rhetorical, this is the rhetorical phase of the trivium in talking to God. That's what I see. I see the same pattern. That's a great parallel. Love that. That's killer. So seek by reading and you'll find by meditating. And, and I want to say something about meditating too. In meditation, to impose upon the reading, upon the mantra, a meaning is to miss the point. Because again, this is something that you're not, you're not really sure why this came out to you. Don't try to impose your own meanings on it. Don't reach too hard. In fact, meditation should be done in emptiness. So Get rid of your preconceived notions about whatever it is jumped out at you. Be in the emptying phase rather than in the imposition phase. Yeah, this is the kenosis of the, the emptying of the first beatitude, right? Yes. Yep. So that you can be filled. Right? You have to hunger and thirst to be filled. So then it was knock by praying. So by knocking, again, this, this sort of imagery or this metaphor implies that we're we're looking for God to open that door to us. Uh, we're knocking on the door of something, and we're hoping to be let in. And so the last stage, and it will be open to you in contemplation. Again, this, this very biblical metaphor of knock and it shall be opened. So seek by reading and you will find by meditating. Knock by praying and it will be open to you in contemplation. Now it's about just sitting with God, resting in, in what you find, right? Yeah. Well, I said that there was a fifth step, though. And, and the fifth oh. one has been optional. You know, it's been added or whatever, but I okay. love it. And I only last, know four that, steps. Yeah. Well, th those are the traditional four right there. But the fifth one is action. Ah, uh, okay. And the reason why I love that so much is because that, you know, action is. It's is, not contemplation. It's not but contemplation. It should follow. But it should follow contemplation. Why, why wouldn't it? You know, I mean, if you've been transformed. How would anyone know it? What is the evidence of your transformation? How would you know it? <laughs> How would you know it? Right. And, and really, to be a Christian disciple is to act upon your, your inclinations toward Christ. This reminds me of the quote that I uh, quoted from Al-Ghazali when we talked about the alchemy of happiness. I think I quoted Al-Ghazali as saying that knowledge without work 
or without action, right? Knowledge without action is insanity. And an action without knowledge is vanity. So it's not time to act yet if you haven't actually received the wisdom, right? But once you have it, to not do something with it is just insane. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, you you seek out truth. You seek out love. And to not reflect that once it's filled you, you're, you're right. It's insanity. It makes no sense. So that's how I approach it, and that's how I would— uh, I in, love it. I would give others that methodology so that they become agents of their own— um, of their own improvement, of their own transformation. Riley, I noticed something here that I want to mention in closing and get your feedback on this, okay? Just, I notice a difference in my whole being and how I feel right now from after talking about this method of Lectio Divina, I feel differently. I feel different than before we talked about it. When we, were ta- when we were taking this, this biblical criticism approach and dealing with all that and, and, and the whole ball of yarn, right? And now when we go through this, I'm not, I'm not even doing the exercise. Just the idea of it is so peaceful. I love that. And it brings me out of all that. I'm able to leave all of that behind and go into this idea. And I can't wait to go and do it. Thanks, Riley. I had six young men with me in uh, this last activity all practicing Lectio Divina for about 15 minutes is all. That's all it took. And I followed up with a question to each of them, like, how do you feel right now? Yeah. Every single one of them said, I feel peaceful. I feel motivated. I feel loved. I, I feel the spirit. Like, it, these are 14-year-old boys. I feel that way just talking about it. I know, because it, it works. It really does. And, and so if there's anything that... I can give. It's something that was given to me um, a few years back. It's this method. It's done a lot for me, and I think it could help everyone that uh, that practices it. Well, thanks for sharing that, Riley. It's been a great conversation. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. 